You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, this is Dr. Miriam Brand. Welcome back to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about a very interesting Dead Sea Scrolls text called The Treatise of the Two Spirits. It's actually in the community rule. But before we start, I'd actually like to thank two people. One is perhaps you've noticed that this last few episodes have had better sound quality. That's thanks to my editor, Danilo. And I would also like to thank Nehemia Gordon, and many of you are familiar with him, who has offered to sponsor many hours of Danilo's editing in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Danilo. Thank you so much, Nehemia, not just for your monetary support with this, but also for your emotional support, for your belief in what I'm doing. Uh, thank you very much. So back to the treatise of the two spirits. What we're doing today is we're kind of wrapping up what I worked on in my book, which is where people in the Second Temple period thought sin was coming from. So what we're going to see in the Treatise of the Two Spirits is that it kind of brings together all sorts of different ideas that we have seen so far in Second Temple approaches to sin. And it brings it all together in kind of a hodgepodge way. But it seems like this text was adopted by the Dead Sea sect because it did such a good job of bringing everything together. Once we conclude the uh, series, it's based on my book. And in the next, in our next episode, I'm going to have kind of a conclusion episode that reminds us of everything we've discussed so far. Then I'm going to start some new topics like uh, sin and punishment, how sin and punishment play out in the Bible, and then later on in Second Temporal Materials and even later in rabbinic literature. So I'm going to be talking about different topics. If there's a certain topic that you're interested in, please let me know. And then I am probably going to start some new series in the future. I will keep you updated. Now, my friend Melissa is not here with me today. She will be back soon, and I will be sure to fill her in in the next episode about what we covered this time. With no further ado, Treatise of the Two Spirits. The Treatise of the Two Spirits is actually, it's kind of a self-contained section that's in the community rule in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the community rule was one of the scrolls found in Cave 1. And of course, later, there are copies in Cave 4. Treatise of the Two Spirits is found in copies from Cave 1 and Cave 4. But because the community rule was part of the kind of Cave 1 findings, and it's numbered Cave 1 because it's the first one they found, with scrolls, it really determined how people look at the Dead Sea sect. And the Treatise of the Two Spirits in particular was considered to be the theology of the Dead Sea sect. Now, certainly it was very important, and the fact that it's included in the community rule shows how important it is. But I think that we've seen a wide range of different approaches to sin, and so now we'll be able to read the Treatise of the Two Spirits with a little bit of a, you know, a, a slightly more critical attitude, where we're going to see that this does not contain the entire Dead Sea theology. We've looked at other texts. They have different approaches to sin. Some are attributing it to demons. Some are attributing it to an internal inclination. Some are stressing determinism. And some, as we saw in the community rule and the Damascus document and the legal and the introduction to the legal text, some of them actually emphasize free will. 
So this is not the be all and end all of Dead Sea the Dead Sea sect theology the way it was once taken. However, it, it was important to the community. And I think we're going to see what I think is true is that the reason that this piece was adopted and put into the community rule is that it in fact reflects, does a very good job of reflecting all sorts of different ideas that were popular in the community at the time. It's in the introduction to the treatise, and it's it's found in the community rule in the K-1 version in column three, lines 13 on. The masculine is told to understand and to teach all the children of light the history of humans. And then the treatise describes God's omniscience, in other words, his omniscience and his foreknowledge. I'm reading from line 15 to 16. From the God of knowledge comes all that is occurring and shall occur. Before they came into being, he established all their designs. And when they come into existence in their fixed times, they carry through their task according to his glorious design. Nothing can be changed. So here we see that the knowledge of God is described as behind the predetermination of all human thought and action. Again, they carry through their task according to his glorious design. Nothing can be changed. So here we see a very extreme form of determinism, right? Everything is determined from the beginning. However, the passage continues by stating that he created the human for the dominion of the world, right? And that's obviously reflecting Genesis, right? Breshit. And that signifies that humans do have power of their environment. And there's, despite the fact that God has determined everything, humans still have power. They, ha- they were created for dominion of the world. Now, the next section is very central to the treatise as a whole. Bear with me as I read it. And it's a, it's a very famous setup. And he placed two spirits for him, that is, for humans, for man. And he placed two spirits for him in which to walk until the appointed time of his appointment, namely the spirits of truth and deceit. In a spring of light is the beginning of truth, and from a well of darkness is the beginning of deceit. In the hand of the prince of lights is the dominion of all the children of righteousness. In the ways of light they walk. And in the hand of the angel of darkness is all the dominion of the children of deceit. And the ways of darkness they walk. Due to the angel of darkness is the straying of all the children of righteousness, and all their sins, their iniquities, their guilt, and their iniquitous works are caused by his dominion, according to God's mysteries, until his period. And all their afflictions and the appointed times of their sufferings are caused by the dominion of his hostility. And all the spirits of his lot cause the children of light to stumble. But the God of Israel and the angel of his truth help all the children of light. Okay, so here we see a kind of very extreme dualistic worldview, which we've also seen before in other texts, in which there's a cosmic dualism, which is reflected by the angel of darkness and the prince of light. And that's responsible for what I would call social dualism. In other words, the difference, the division between the children of righteousness and the children of deceit, the difference between groups of people. And the connection between the cosmic and social dualism we see here is very similar to the curses we read earlier that are in the community rule against Blial, where you have that Blial and his lot, and Blial creates the division between, you know, our group and the outsiders. So you have a cosmic dualism, God as it were versus Blial, and social dualism, our group or the righteous people versus the others who are the wicked people. Now, this passage actually presents a separation between these groups as a function of the basically dualistic nature of creation, okay? The spirits of truth and deceit determine human action until you get to mo'ed kukudato, 
In other words, the eschatological age, all right? And they reside in areas of light and darkness. In other words, the, the spirit of truth is in the area of light, spirit of deceit is in the area of darkness, and these areas are ruled by the prince of lights and the angel of darkness. Okay, and each of these is given a share of humanity to lead, right? So in the hand of the angel, I'm reading now, in the hand of the angel of darkness is all the dominion of the children of deceit and the ways of darkness they walk. Due to the angel of darkness is the string of all the children of righteousness. So here we see a change. We had, it said earlier, in the hand of the prince of lights is the dominion of all the children of righteousness. The children of righteousness belong to prince of lights. The children of deceit belong to the angel of darkness in this setup. However, the angel of darkness can still cause the straying of all the children of righteousness. In other words, he's not restricted. He can still affect righteous. This is a little bit in contrast to what we saw with the setup of Blial, where Blial is not supposed to be able to affect or usually can't affect the members of the group. Here, any sins that members of the group have done, or I should say the righteous, because it's not specifically saying members of the group, the righteous have done, the children of righteousness have done, is because of the angel of darkness. So we see that the righteous can induce sin in this setup. And then at the end of the passage that I read, we see that we have the spirits of his lot. We're talking about the angel of darkness. This is in all the spirits of his lot cause the children of light to stumble. In other words, not just the angel of darkness, but he has some kind of demonic spirits that fulfill his will. However, the God of Israel, but the God of Israel and the angel of his truth help all the children of light. So you have, they can stumble right, because of these spirits, but God and his angel help so here, actually, ideas and terminology that we have here is closest to what appears in the war scroll. You have the children of light versus children of darkness. Okay, but of course, here there's more of an emphasis on why people sin, what's going on, right? So you have actually two explanations here. And again, these are explanations we've seen before in different documents. It's bringing them together, the idea that both it's determined from the beginning of time. Also, you belong to a lot. So you're the children of light, so you're going to be righteous, or the, rather the children of righteousness, so you're going to be righteous. And then the children of deceit are going to sin. But also, there are these demons, or which are it's the angel of darkness and also his spirits that can cause sin among the righteous. Now, actually, we have another text that has a somewhat of a similarity to this idea. And that's called the Visions of Amram, and that was found in Cave 4. And the Visions of Amram has been identified as a pre-sectarian text. In other words, it existed before the group, and the group kind of copied it. And it talks about the meaning of Amram. Okay, Amram is, of course, the father of Moshe and Aharon, right, and Miriam. And in this story, he has a vision. And it says, I saw in my vision, the vision of the dream, and there were two figures arguing over me and saying something and holding a great dispute over me. So I asked them, how is it you have authority over me? They said to me, we rule, we rule over all humans. And they said to me, which of us do you seek? I lifted my eyes and saw one of them whose appearance was molting like a serpent and all his clothing was multicolored and very dark. And I saw another and in his appearance and his face was laughing and he was covered with a garment. In another fragment, we get a better understanding of who these spirits are. He said, who is this? He said to me, this one is something, and Melki Resha. Melki Resha, of course, being the stand-in for Pleyal that we've seen elsewhere. And I said, my Lord, what is the dominion? And so apparently the good angel speaking to him, he says, darkness, all his work is darkness, and he leads into darkness, and he rules over all darkness. While I, something, from the height to the earth, I am ruler over all light. 
So here we have Amram, and he's seeing these two angels, right? These the dark and the light, and they're saying, choose, choose which of us you're going to belong to. And what's interesting is that here there's a contrast. So Visions of Amram, again, is a, a text that's being copied. It's, we have several copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But here there's a choice. He chooses which angel he belongs to. In the Treatise of the Two Spirits, which is our, the text, the main text we're talking about here, which is in the community rule, which is a central text, there is no choice. It's all determined. What's interesting, what's especially interesting here is, is those who uh, point to a Persian parallel. There's a, a parallel in terms of spirits of light and darkness and people belonging to one or the other in Zoroastrian texts specifically in the Gathas, that parallel in the Gathas, actually, it's a choice. In other words, you must choose between the spirits. And so it's actually the visions of Amram that is much closer to the Persian text than what we have here, even though a lot of the the language seems to be similar. Now, the treatise continues, and it kind of starts spreading out into different ways of looking at these darkness or deceit versus light or truth. Okay, so it says, talking about God, he created the spirits of light and darkness, and upon them he founded every work, every action, and upon their ways, all, and we're missing a piece here, one God loves for all appointed times of eternity, taking pleasure in all its doings forever. Concerning the other, he loathes its assembly, all its ways he hates forever. So as he created the spirits of light and darkness, this is part of God's mysteries, right? Because we can't really understand why he would create something that he hates, right? He creates light and dark, the spirits of light and darkness, and upon them he founded every work. In other words, everything can be split this way. But what started out as kind of a cosmic dualism and a social dualism, in other words, a division between cosmic forces and a division between groups of people, is now going to become ethical dualism. In other words, we're going to split actions, okay? Now, before we've talked about cosmic dualism, right, we have these two forces, these two angels of light and darkness or truth and falsehood. And then social dualism, right? We have the groups, we have their, the children of righteousness, right? Or the children of deceit. And of course, being part of those social groups, being part of that socialism, there's a certain ethical dualism that goes along with that. In other words, obviously, the children of righteousness are going to be righteous, they're going to do the right thing. And the children of darkness are going to walk in the ways of darkness. That's what we've seen. But the next section talks about the anthropological aspect of ethical dualism. In other words, the spirits now become described as human qualities. So the righteous receive a spirit of humility and patience, of great compassion and constant goodness, and of prudence, insight, and wonderful wisdom. And those are described as, these are the principles of the spirit for the children of truth. And in contrast, the wicked suffer from a spirit of deceit. What is the spirit of deceit? But concerning the spirit of deceit, greed and slackness and righteous activity, wickedness and falsehood, pride and haughtiness, atrocious disguise and falsehood, great hypocrisy, fury, great vileness, shameless zeal for abominable works and a spirit of fornication, filthy ways and unclean worship, a tongue of blasphemy, blindness of eyes and deafness of ear, stiffness of neck and hardness of heart that results in walking in all the ways of darkness and evil craftiness. The visitation of all those who walk in it will be many afflictions by all the angels of punishment, eternal perdition by the fury of God's vengeful wrath, everlasting terror and endless shame, together with disgrace of annihilation in the fire of the dark region. And all their times for their generations will be expended in dreadful suffering and bitter misery in dark abysses until they are destroyed. There will be no remnant, no rescue for them. Now, I want to point out the transition here because we, we could very easily miss it. 
Whereas before we had people are evil because they're ruled by the angel of darkness, right? And that's something similar to what we saw in the idea of Blial's lot, right? They're ruled by the spirit. of Now we're seeing something else. These people have a spirit of deceit. This is closer to what we would normally call an evil inclination, right? Normally, if we just started here, we'd be like, oh, it's talking about an evil inclination. It's talking about people who have these ingrained traits, right, of greed and slackness and wickedness and falsehood, pride and haughtiness, right, except they seem to be all bad, right, as opposed to a regular person who has an evil inclination. The righteous seem to have a spirit of humility and patience of great compassion, etc. They're all good, and these guys are all bad, okay? now. Good and evil spirits have been kind of internalized and recognized that we have, again, that connection to human organs that we saw in the Barki Nafshi prayer. A tongue of blasphemy, blindness of eyes and deafness of ears, stiffness of neck and hardness of heart. So it's connected to their very bodily organs at the same time as it's not just. In other words, we have all sorts of traits and some of them actually involve their body. So you can't say, oh, well, it's just because they're physical, Right. And then in the next section, we get back to the idea of predestination. It begins by describing the determination of, quote, the portion of each person, nachalat ish, in one of the two spirits of truth and deceit. And it says they're going to exist side by side until the eschaton, until the end days. Okay. It says, in these are the beginning or generations, be'ele toldot, in the beginning or generations of all the children of man. And in their divisions, all their hosts of their generations have a share. In their ways they walk, and the entire task of their works falls within their divisions according to a person's share, much or little, in all the times of eternity. For God has set them as equals until the end time, and put eternal enmity between their divisions. Now, what's interesting here is all of a sudden we're not talking about someone who's purely righteous or purely evil, because it seems like the entire task of their works falls within their divisions according to a person's share, much or little. Okay, so it seems like maybe you can be have mixed spirits. And the second section explains that despite the hate that each bears the other, I mean, eternal enmity between their divisions, right? Between the divisions of the, between the spirits of truth and deceit. Okay. That despite the hate that each bears the other, God, in the mysteries of his wisdom, set a time period in which deceit is allowed to exist. Now, do you guys remember Memshelet Blial, the time during which Blial is allowed to have dominion? Okay, this is parallel to that, except we're not, we don't have Blial here. Here we have the spirits of truth and deceit, and God, in the mysteries of his wisdom, that's a quote, in the mysteries of his wisdom, quote unquote, set a time period in which this deceit is allowed to exist. But at the end of this period, at the appointed time, it will be destroyed. And I'm reading now, an abomination to truth are the doings of deceit, and an abomination to deceit are all the ways of truth. There is a fierce struggle between all their judgments, for they do not walk together. And this is interesting because are we still talking about spirits or are we talking about kind of abstract concepts? It's, it's not completely clear. But God, in his mysterious understanding and his glorious wisdom, has set a period for the existence of deceit. Because you understand why he would have truth, but having deceit, that doesn't make sense. At the appointed time for visitation, he will destroy it forever. Then truth will emerge forever in the world, which has polluted itself by the ways of evil during the dominion of deceit. So here, the appointed time does not include the destruction of the wicked, despite, you know, a previous passage where we had that at the end of time, the wicked are going to be destroyed, you know, that they're going to be suffer and be inflamed, etc. Here, it's not that 
that the wicked people are going to be destroyed, but wickedness itself will be destroyed. I'll read it again. Then truth will emerge forever in the world, which has polluted itself by the ways of evil during the dominion of deceit. Okay, the deceit will be destroyed forever. So at the appointed time for visitation, he'll destroy it forever. Okay, and I'm continuing reading. Then God will purify by his truth all the works of man and purge for himself the children of man in order to utterly destroy the spirit of deceit from the innards of his flesh and to purify him with a holy spirit from all evil acts and sprinkle upon him a spirit of truth like waters of purification to purify him from all the abominations of falsehood and from being polluted by a spirit of impurity so that upright ones may have insight into the knowledge of the Most High and the wisdom of the children of heaven so that the perfect in the way may receive understanding for God has chosen them for an eternal covenant and all the glory of man shall be theirs and there will be no deceit. All false works will be put to shame. Now, here we see a very different vision, and this reflects a little bit of what we saw in prayers, where the people praying are saying, remove these evil spirits, or remove, help me against my evil inclination. Like, they're considering themselves a righteous person, and yet they're struggling. Here, what we seem to be seeing is, this is the answer to those righteous people, quote-unquote, that God, in the end days, he's going to purify, he's going to purge purge people so he'll destroy the spirit of deceit. He's going to remove it. He's going to destroy the spirit of his deceit from the innards of his flesh, in other words, of, of human flesh, and purify him with the Holy Spirit. And then it finishes so that upright ones may have insight to knowledge. In other words, it's talking about people who consider themselves upright, or it could be talking, the truth is when it starts, it could be anyone. Like, it could be everyone. It could be the completely wicked, and God's going to completely, you know, there's someone who's a completely wicked, and God's going to purge him from wickedness. But the end of the passage very clearly is talking about people who consider themselves righteous. It's talking about the up, so that upright ones may have insight into the knowledge of the Most High. And it says, for God has chosen them for an eternal covenant, and all the glory of man shall be theirs. So here what we're seeing reflected is this kind of idea that righteous people do have this problem with what we could call the spirit of deceit, what we've called elsewhere an evil inclination, right? And God, in the end time, will clear, clean them of it because he's going to destroy wickedness itself. Not the wicked, but wickedness. This is what I mean by the treatise of the two spirits, which is a central text in the community rule, combining all sorts of different ideas that we see throughout the Dead Sea Scroll texts. It combines ideas of the evil inclination. It combines ideas of demonic spirits causing sin. It combines ideas of two groups, the wicked and the righteous, with an idea of righteous people who have an urge to sin or, or wicked people who can be saved. So it's combining all these ideas in a single text. By the way, it's considered to be a redacted text. It's a put together text, but it seems to have been redacted and it was put together as a text before it was brought into the community rule. So again, and I'll repeat this probably at least once more, I think that this is why it was brought into the community rule because it combines all these ideas that were popular in the Dead Sea community and in Second Temple Judaism in general. And I, I want to emphasize again how complex any religious life can be, really. And that includes the religious life of Second Temple Jewry. In other words, you could have these differing beliefs, even contradictory beliefs, at the same time. And then we finish with an explanation again of the spirits of truth and deceit. Until now, the spirits of truth and deceit struggle in the heart of humans, and so they walk in wisdom or vileness. According to a man's share in truth shall he be righteous and thus hate deceit, and according to his inheritance in the law of deceit, he shall be evil through it and thus loathe truth. 
Now, notice what we have here. Before, we had people who were children of deceit and people who were children of righteousness. Now, all of a sudden, no, we have these two spirits that are a mix. And when we say the spirits of truth and deceit, it's not completely clear that here we're talking about some actual angelic or demonic entity. It could simply be abstract. And those truth and deceit as abstract concepts. It isn't clear. Until now, the spirits of truth and deceit struggle in the heart of humans. Notice we're not saying the angel of darkness, right? And we're not saying the prince of light. We're just saying the spirits of truth and deceit. Until now, and that's what we've been talking about since we started talking about human traits. We've been calling them the spirits of truth and deceit in this text. Until now, the spirits of truth and deceit struggle in the heart of humans, and so they walk in wisdom or vileness. According to a man's share in truth shall he be righteous and thus hate deceit, and according to his inheritance in the law of deceit, he shall be evil through it, and thus loathe truth. For God has set them as equals until the time of that which has been decided and the making of the new. He knows the reward of their works for all the end of their appointed times, and he allots them to the children of man for knowledge of good, and thus casting the lots for every living being. We're getting back to predeterminism. According to his spirit, something, the visitation. In other words, people are a mix, and the contents of that mix are determined by lots at the beginning of creation or at the beginning of each person's existence. It isn't clear, but we, in general, the Dead Sea Schools talk about God is casting lots at creation. So it's determined, not only are people's actions determined, and this is according to the beginning of the treatise, it's determined how much of a person is evil and good. And we do know that the Dead Sea sect, in fact, cast lots to decide what level a person was at. And it seems to reflect this idea of God casting lots to see how much of a person is good or evil. So what have we seen here with the treatise? Again, Treatise of the Two Spirits, it is a central text. It's in the community rule. However, it is not like pretty much any other text that we find anywhere in the Dead Sea Scrolls, except maybe what, what I read you from the Visions of Amram. Right? And the visions of Amram is only like it in a very specific instance, and it emphasizes choice, which the treatise of the two spirits definitely does not. It's very predeterministic. But what's interesting is we don't see its echoes in other of the scrolls. On the contrary, if we didn't have the treatise of the two spirits, we would never get to the treatise of the two spirits. We would never think this is a central belief. What I read to you before, in other words, the idea of two spirits, of light and darkness, or two more abstract, rather, angels of light and darkness, or two abstract spirits of truth and deceit that determine the traits of people, right? We wouldn't, we don't see that anywhere else. But what this text does do is it actually brings together a lot of different ideas that we've seen throughout Dead Sea School texts. It brings together the idea of the determination of people's traits. It brings together the idea that you belong to a group, right? You're a child of righteousness or a child of deceit, which is like being like one of the lot of God or the lot of Blial right? It's very similar to that. It brings together the idea that a person can have it struggling within them, right? We saw that in terms of the idea that God's going to wipe out wickedness from the righteous, and also the idea that each person has shares of wickedness, of deceit and truth in them, right? It's an internal thing. And of course, the idea of demonic influence, that it's actually from the angel of darkness, and that's the reason people sin, not because of some internal traits. We see all these different ideas all in one text. And it makes sense that this could be adopted as a text that reflects, it allows people to have all these kind of different ideas about sin in one community and still nod along with this text. 
right? Now, it does have, the text is different enough that a lot of people have pointed to kind of Persian influence because there's certain ways in which it's parallel to Zoroastrian thought in terms of the way there's a division between truth and deceit in particular, and that kind of determines good and evil. The idea that these coexist until the end time, that is a Persian idea. There's a, a real parallel to one of the gathas found in the old Avesta. It's Yasna 30. I'll read it to you because everyone brings it up when we talk about the Treatise of the Two Spirits. I'm reading now, not from the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'm reading from one of the Gathas found in the Old Avesta. It's Ghazna 30, and it's a Persian Zoroastrian text. Truly, there are two primal spirits, twins renowned to be in conflict. In thought and word and act, they are two, the better and the bad. And those who act well have chosen rightly between these two, not so the evildoers. And when these two spirits first came together, they created life and not life. And how at the end worst existence shall be for the wicked, but the house of best purpose for the just man. Of these two spirits, the wicked one chose achieving the worst things. The most holy spirit, who is clad in hardest stone, chose right. And so do those who shall satisfy Lord Mazda continually with rightful acts. Then when retribution comes for these sinners, then Mazda power shall be present for thee with good purpose to declare himself for those, Lord, who shall deliver the lie into the hands of truth. That's a Zoroastrian text. Now, it's talking about two spirits. One is good, one is bad. One is essentially truth, one is deceit. It's a little bit different because this is real dualism, complete dualism. In other words, it's not dualism within monotheism. It's they both, they created life and not life together, right? And also, there's a choice. It says, and those who act will have chosen rightly between these two. The whole point there is the choice. And we can really draw more of a parallel to the visions of Amram, where he has a choice between these two angels, who to follow. It's less parallel, actually, to what we see in the Treatise of the Two Spirits. However, it is important to realize that this idea of extreme dualism that is both cosmic and ethical, we do find in Zoroastrianism. And of course, if we're talking about the Second Temple period, this is at following a long period of working, you know, of being within the Persian Empire, right? That precedes the return to Zion and includes the return to Zion so that there are ways that Persian ideas would have, could have gotten to Jewish thinkers. And yet again, we have to recognize first that, of course, for any Jewish thinker, everything must be in the context of monotheism, right? That God is above everything, right? And also that we saw some real differences between the determinism that's being that's being reflected in the Dead Sea community text and the choice that's being reflected in the Gathas. So what then is the possible purpose of this treatise of the two spirits and, and what can we learn from it? So I, I've said this, I've said this once, but I'll say it again. I think that if we're looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think that we should not overemphasize the importance of the treatise of the two spirits. I think it's important, but I don't think that's it. I don't think in early books on the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see people simply quoting this as the theology of the Quran community. And I think we've seen in the course of this podcast so far that that is not true. It's not their the, it's not a summary of all Qumran theology. It's not even a summary of all Qumran views of sin. And what we've seen is that this, the differences and actually the passages of the treatise of the two spirits shows us and the way these different passages reflect different ideas of sin that we've seen in different scrolls and in different texts shows us how complex the worldview was of the Dead Sea community and of Second Temple Judaism.
we've been looking at kind of the, we've been kind of focusing on ideas of sin and where sin comes from. But I think we can extrapolate out from that and say, in general, we can't, it's not, you don't just summarize a worldview in three sentences. And that goes for religious worldviews as well. I think that when I look at modern religious views, I think that is also true. And I think that people sometimes make the mistake of saying, let's boil down someone else's religious view to like, 12 sentences, and now we know what they believe. And you may know some of what they believe, but we all as human beings have very com- have a very, a very complicated belief system. I think religious or not religious. I think the difference is that a, a religious person is more likely to think about the different pieces of their belief system in a more concrete way because they deal with it all the time. But we all hold very complex belief systems within a complicated worldview that changes according to what we're involved in and what we're trying to explain. So I hope that this came through so far, not only in this episode, but in the podcast so far. In our next episode, we're going to kind of go over what we've done so far and talk about now what we're going to address and what our approach is going to be in looking at issues like sin and punishment in the Bible and in Second Temple texts and beyond the idea of hell and other ideas as they come to me and other concepts as they come to me and as they are suggested by you guys. So please feel free to comment or suggest topics that we can address in future episodes. I'm looking forward to speaking to you again, and I'm looking forward to seeing your comments. Thanks. Take care. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.